The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. I would like to ask that you would please take out your Bibles this morning, and we're going to be... um Continuing on in our series in the book of Mark, we're going to be in chapter 12 today. Most of you have probably noticed that I don't often or regularly speak from the pulpit about politics. And the reason for that is very simple. I never want to use this as a bully pulpit. I never want to use this to go beyond what the Word of God teaches us in Scripture in order to speak about my own agenda or my own perspectives. I have many strong opinions about politics, and I attempt to be a good citizen by living according to them and by voting and and acting as a responsible uh, American and performing my civic duties. Yet, other than my wife, I don't think any of you know who I voted for this past year. Please don't ask me who I voted for. I will never tell you, um, because my responsibility is not to teach you who to vote for But my responsibility is to teach you what the scripture teaches us about how we should think about voting and how we should vote and to present a way for you to live in a way that is honoring to God. But there are times when it is appropriate for us as Christians to think carefully and teach and preach about the Christian involvement with the realm of government. And when the text of scripture gives us clear truth, it would actually be sinful for me not to affirm it and teach it and preach it. Abortion, slavery, racism, euthanasia, marriage, and other issues like this, as much as they are affected and and are voted about and discussed in the political realm, these are not really political issues. They are spiritual ones. And therefore, we must understand the biblical perspective of them. And the Bible is clear. We as Christians must stand in affirmation of biblical standards. Today, our text takes us to an issue that we all feel strongly about. I'm sure of it. It is taxation. So please follow along as I start reading in Mark chapter 12, verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to him and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them, or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him, rightfully so. I'm going to offer you four observations from this text, and I'm going to offer you some applications sprinkled throughout. But before we attempt to understand these divinely spoken words, let's first be sure that we're not doing this in our own strength. Let's go to the Father, and let's ask him, and please pray with me for guidance and for commitment to follow what we are learning today. Our Father God in heaven, We are grateful that you have given us your word. Lord, we are thankful that this event, this encounter between Jesus and the 
Pharisees and Herodians was recorded for us. We thank you that you have desired for us at this time to reach this text. Lord, I thank you that you know exactly why you desire this to be taught this morning. Father, I pray this would not fall on deaf ears, but Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray you would give us ears to hear. God, we cannot understand or apply your word on our own strength. We desperately need you. God, as your messenger this morning, I desperately need you. Father, I pray that you would strengthen me in my body, my voice, and in my mind. As I proclaim these words, Father God, I pray that you would please allow me to speak truthfully and clearly and persuasively and passionately and compassionately about what your word teaches us today. God, we desire that the outcomes that you have desired from this text would be made in our hearts today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We begin with observation number one, the enemy of my enemy. We live in a contentious political time. More than I can ever remember in my lifetime, everybody is concerned. They are bitter, angry, argumentative, frustrated by everything that's going on in the political world around us. But there's a reason for that. There's absolutely a legitimate reason for that. The tensions that are felt are due to the fact that there are massive worldview differences in our country. For the most part, there used to be uniformity in the political sphere in America where everyone could agree that this is a problem. They would just argue about the solution. However, now we have entered into a new era where what one group calls evil, the other group calls good, and vice versa, which is why things have devolved into this dumpster fire that you see in front of you every time you turn on the news. But this is not unique to our time. In the time of Christ, the Sanhedrin were made up of three main groups of people. These factions were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. And these three factions are going to take turns, like warriors in a bad kung fu movie, one at a time approaching and attempting to knock Christ off of his position of authority. And the Pharisees are going to ask him about taxation. The Sadducees, we'll see next time I preach, will speak about the resurrection. And the scribes after them will come speak about biblical interpretation. In many ways, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes were theologically different. But politically, they would for the most part be in alignment and agreement with one another. However, there were some amongst the Sanhedrin who had a very different worldview politically. I'm speaking about the Herodians. These were men of Israel who aligned themselves with King Herod, and they sought to buddy up to the Romans. Culturally, they were seeking to leave behind their Jewish roots. They wanted to move away from their Jewishness, from what made them distinct and become more Hellenistic or Greek in their culture, often even dressing like the Greeks. There was nothing that the Pharisees would have hated more than the policies and politics and practices Of the Herodians. Commenter Kent Hughes says it this way. He says, The Pharisees represented narrow, conservative Judaism, and the Herodians were the liberal and syncretistic people in their convictions. The Pharisees were right wingers, the Herodians were left wingers. The Pharisees represented resistance to Rome, and the Herodians represented accommodation to Rome. But they were cemented together by their mutual hatred. For Jesus. The Pharisees hated him because he was disrupting their religious agenda. 
and the Herodians hated him because he threatened their political arrangement. So they both wanted him dead, the enemy of my enemy. But this is not the first time these two parties had colluded together. After Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath with the withered hand, you remember that story back in Mark chapter 3, we read these verses, these these words in verse 6. It says, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Although the Pharisees were the majority of the ruling party, they were not the wealthiest or most influential politically. That was the Herodians. If they wanted power on their side, they knew that they needed to collaborate with their greatest enemies. This was the Capulets and the Montagues. This was Cats and Dogs or Hatfields and McCoys or Taylor Swift and Kanye West. It was an enemy. They were enemies of one another. Our country, which, by the way, has no regard for proper language, would probably say that this uneasy alliance between Pharisees and Herodians put them into the category of frenemies. It's a temporary alliance only created by necessity to oppose a greater threat. So why am I belaboring this point? Why, why even bother talking about this historical political difference? It's simply this. Everyone who is not for Christ is against him. And as followers of Jesus, the world that is so divided against one another will only find one way to be unified and united, and that is to oppose our king. The fallen world is only united in this way, and that's why they have all lined up in battle against God. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves up, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The only unifying reality of the fallen world is in their agreement to oppose God. Because, as I just read from Psalm chapter 2, they refuse to acknowledge God's rule and authority over them, and they are seeking to burst his bonds of control. Although we know, as we read in that chapter, they cannot do that. As Christians, we should anticipate that this will trickle down to us. Jesus told the apostles as much in John 15 when he said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So here's our first application for the morning. Do not be surprised. Do not be surprised when the world rejects you and persecutes you because of your faith. Anticipate that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, as we learn from the writings of Paul. It is a promise. Jesus says so clearly to us. So when persecutions arise, and they will, so that you'll be able to rejoice in Christ without swaying in your faith, just like we heard about earlier with Hugh Latimer and those who were martyred with him. Observation number two, flattery. Look again to Mark chapter 12 and see starting in verse 14. And they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Flattery is an attempt at manipulation, and it is sin. 
If these men were able to speak to Jesus in a back room somewhere or in an alley where there was no audience, you better believe that there is no way they would speak in this complimentary way to Jesus. Let's look at them briefly, one at a time, these compliments they are giving. And as we do, I want you to notice something. Everything these people say is 100% true. First, they say, teacher, we know that you're true. We know that you are true. By saying this, his opponents, Jesus' opponents, are affirming his ministry. They are actually declaring approval for his agenda. We know that you are true. And then they continue, and do not care about anyone's opinion. This means that Jesus is not a follower. Jesus is a leader. He is not self-conscious about his decisions, but is fully convinced that his way is right and just and good. And they continue this mode of thinking when they say, for you are not swayed by appearances. This means that Jesus did not back down from anyone out of fear or bow down out of a desire to curry someone's favor or prioritize someone because of their wealth or to prefer someone because of their beauty or to trust someone because of their position. It means that Jesus was impartial and committed to his own teachings of truth. Ironically, although they are supporting this and declaring this to be a good thing, this is one of the reasons the Pharisees hate Jesus. Yet they are publicly extolling him for it. And finally they say, but you truly teach the way of God. Isn't it interesting? The Pharisees and the Herodians would say publicly, openly in the square of the temple, you teach the way of God. There's something very intriguing happening here. There is an acknowledgement on the part of the Pharisees that Jesus' teachings are God's very own teachings. Let me ask you, though, did they believe that? This is an important question for us to ask, but before we write it off and say they were completely lying, I want you to remember the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus roughly three years earlier. He was a ruling Pharisee that was probably part of this Sanhedrin. This conversation happened at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. Nicodemus approached Jesus in John chapter 3, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. We know that. We know that. There's enough evidence for us to recognize that you cannot do what you are doing, these miraculous deeds, unless you are sent from God. They know the Old Testament. They know that there are only a few times in all of world history where miracles broke onto the scene. You have Moses, and then right after him, Joshua, who performed great miracles. And then years later, centuries even, you had Elijah, and after him, Elisha, who performed miraculous deeds for the purpose of pointing people to the truth of God. And they see these miracles and say, we know you're from God because no one can do these things unless they come from God. This tells us something very profound. It tells us that there are competing beliefs in their minds about Jesus. On the one hand, they know that he is a teacher who has come from God. But on the other hand, they want nothing to do with his teaching. And they are refusing to believe it. So these things they say about Jesus, they're all true, completely 100% accurate. And although they know them to be true, they have committed themselves in firm opposition against Jesus. So why do they publicly announce these things? 
Why are they saying these things? Why are they approaching Jesus in this manner in the temple where everyone could hear them? Because flattery is an attempt at manipulation, and it is a sin. So here is a simple yet important application for you. Do not flatter anyone, and beware of those who flatter you. Consider what Scripture teaches about the one who flatters. Proverbs twenty six twenty eight: A flattering mouth works ruin. You're not helping them. Or Proverbs 28, 23, he who rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters him with his tongue. Or Psalms 12, verse 3 says, may the Lord cut off all flattering tongues. That's just a short sampling. God hates flattery. It's all throughout the scripture. It is a form of lying. And that's what the Pharisees are doing by this presentation. Have any of you ever seen the movie Finding Nemo? I feel like at some point in every child's life, that's their favorite film, since Pixar put it out on the scene. If you've seen it, you'll remember the part where the two main fish characters in this animated movie swim down into the deep darkness of the ocean where there is no light. Suddenly there's this little light that begins floating around, and they begin chasing it and singing about it and and, and kind of almost taking it like a pet and playing with it and enjoying it. And one of the fish, the main character of the film, begins to say, Wow, I feel so happy, and that's a big deal for me. And then all of a sudden, you, you see in the screen that what this is is a bioluminescent attractor of a massive anglerfish with incredibly sharp teeth, and all of a sudden it comes into the light, and they see the face of this giant fish that is there to kill them, and he says, good feeling, gone, and swims away at top speed, and the two of them are almost consumed. That's what flattery does. That's a great picture of flattery, except instead of causing you to look at some bioluminescent tassel hanging from the head of a fish, they are going to get you to look and adore yourself. Look how good you are. You're such a great person. You're so smart and clever and so righteous and wonderful and such a good Christian. And they build you up and build you up and build you up, and you don't see what they're doing because you love to hear it. Yeah, finally somebody noticed This is great news that you see my glory. And then they ruthlessly come in for the kill. And Jesus sees right through this deception. He's not thrown for any kind of a loop. He's not thrown off at all. And one of the reasons for this is because Jesus always had an accurate perception of himself and who he was. And he knew his own heart. And he knew his own character. And he also knew theirs. He did not need anyone else to puff him up. I encourage you, Strive to have an accurate perception of yourself so that when somebody does come to you and begins to puff you up, the first thing you should recognize is your own pride and see that they are, regardless of whether or not they are attempting to do so, are helping you to sin. If they are puffing you up in ways that are not accurate, they are causing you to see yourself inaccurately before God. (coughs) So have humility and say, wait a minute, pump the brakes here. I'm not really like that. Maybe you don't say this out loud, but at least internally recognize that you are a desperate sinner who is hopeless without the grace of God in your life. And realize that all the things that they're saying, if they are true, it's only because God has worked them in you. Uh, My wife is a great example to me in many ways, but one of them is whenever anybody encourages her or says how great she is doing at something, which she does a phenomenal job in all that she does, she really is the MVP of the church, She will always say, well, if there's anything good in me, it's because of God. And that is a great example for me. 
Because it's so true. If we are good in any way, it's because God is sanctifying us and changing us. And if we have this mindset about ourselves, then we will not fall into the trap of the flatterer. But as verse 15 says, we see Jesus does not fall into this trap. It says, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? So let's move now on to the third observation. Render to Caesar. What was the trap that the Pharisees and the Herodians are setting? The flattery was the bait, but the trap is the question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? They give him two options to answer here. This is not a question they just came up with on the spot. This was a genuine debate that was happening amongst the people of Israel constantly. And here's why. The people of Israel knew that the Romans were doing very sinful, wicked, evil things. In particular, the Romans were a highly idolatrous people. And they knew that God was very seriously opposed to the worship and celebration of idols. Yet when they paid taxes to Rome, some of that money would have been used to erect temples to Jupiter and to Juno and Minerva and the rest of the pantheon of the Romans. So the question arose, if we are funding these temples, are we complicit in their idolatry? Is God going to judge us like he judged those who were idolaters in the Old Testament? Is God going to come against our nation and destroy us because we're involved in the worship of idols like Ahab and Jezebel? How should we answer this question? We as Christians should be particularly interested in the answer to this question because the issue still stands. Are we complicit in the atrocities of our nation if we help fund them through taxes? Make no mistake, our taxes do fund evil things. Just to mention one, some of the money that I have paid to our government has gone to killing babies. Some of my taxes and yours has gone to funding Planned Parenthood, which sacrifices human beings on the altar of convenience. So don't think for one moment that this is a dead issue. The question is just, how relevant is this to us now? Just as relevant as it was then. But Jesus knew this was a trap. What were the Pharisees and Herodians trying to get him to say? They gave him two options. Should we pay taxes or not pay taxes? What do they want him to say here? Well, they thought they had backed Jesus into a corner because they believed these were the only two answers he could give. Jesus could have said, don't pay your taxes to Rome. And if he did, this would have resulted in the Roman government perceiving Jesus as an insurrectionist. And the Pharisees and Herodians knew that this answer would result in Jesus being arrested or maybe even killed by the Romans. So the Pharisees were attempting to get the Roman authorities to do their dirty work. On the other hand, Jesus could have said, Rome is our authority, so we have to do whatever they tell us. This would have completely alienated the crowds, and it would have turned them against Jesus and back to the Sanhedrin, which is exactly what the Pharisees want. So the Pharisees and the Herodians ask him this question, believing that they have backed him now into a corner where he has no good escape. But Jesus responds to them and says, why put me to the test? By asking this, he reveals what is in their heart. It's not all those flattering things that they said, but it's because of their great evil. And he's showing them, if not everyone around them, I know what you're doing. And I know that this is not coming out of a genuine heart of questioning. It is coming out of anger and violence. Why put me to the test? 
So he says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Obviously they knew this was Caesar's picture. And he said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Jesus gives us a very simple yet effective slogan to know how we should approach our government. Although the question was about taxes, this response actually goes much deeper than that. It speaks to all the ways that we are supposed to render our services to the nation of our origin or of our citizenship. There's a story of a man who many years ago wrote a letter to the IRS. It writes this way, or reads this way. Dear sir, my conscience bothered me. So here's the $175 that I owe in back taxes. Then there was a P.S., If my conscience still bothers me, I'll send the rest. (laughs) That's kind of the way that we often seek to approach the IRS and the government and the taxation. We see it as oppression from them, just like the Jews would have seen the Romans as oppression to them. But paying taxes is not a matter of conscience. It's a matter of duty. And Jesus is teaching us that our responsibility to government does not make us complicit in their decisions about what to do with that money. We are not complicit in their sins if we are honoring God by paying taxes and they are dishonoring him with how to spend it. You might say, but I don't agree with those people who are in office. I don't agree with how they use my money. Maybe you don't like the current president or the current governor or the current mayor or the things that they support. I just want to ask you, do you think that Nero had a high approval rating among the Christian population? Do you think that the Apostle Peter was pleased with Nero's policy of covering Christians in oil and throwing them into cages and lighting them on fire at his garden parties? No, surely not. Yet, the Apostle Paul teaches us that Christianity and Christians actually have more responsibilities to government than unbelievers do. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, he writes, First of all, then, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high position, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Pray for that man, Nero. Pray for that emperor. Pray for that man in authority or woman in authority in our government that you don't like. We have a responsibility that goes beyond that of the world. Do you think that Paul was happy that Christianity was illegal and that he kept getting thrown into prison and beaten? Yet it is still Paul who wrote this in Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. And a few verses later, he says, For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Paul calls the Roman government that would eventually execute him for his faith ministers of God. Wow. Does that not amaze you? If it doesn't, I don't think you're reading it closely enough. He notes that their appointment of their position And all of their authority is not outside of God's control, but part of it, and part of his divine plan. To state this very succinctly, Jesus paid taxes to the same Roman government that paid the soldiers to nail him to the cross. Do you have an excuse to be unfaithful or to be dishonest in your taxes? 
Absolutely not. But this extends to all forms of civic responsibilities that fall under the office or the category of obedience to our government. But I think it's necessary that I make a caveat here. There are occasions when it is not only acceptable but necessary for us to engage in civil disobedience. We see this modeled for us in the lives of the apostles. One clear example is found in Acts chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, when the apostles were teaching and preaching about Christ, and they were approached by the high priest. This man was the highest ruling Jewish authority figure at his time, at the time of the apostles. And this man approached and said, we strictly charged you, we've already told you, not to teach in his name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But it continues and says in verse 29, But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. And they lived this out to the point that 11 of them were executed for their faith. Not at this time, but later in their lives. There are occasions when governments fail in their role and attempt to coerce you into sinning against God. In those instances, we must stand firmly against our government, recognizing that our primary allegiance is not pledged to our American flag, but to the King of Heaven, Jesus Christ. It's likely that the day is rapidly approaching when this will become necessary as our nation has moved to a worldview which views any rejection of sin as hatred and any declaration of God's command to be hate speech. So render to Caesar what is Caesar. Jesus says, yes, give them your money if that's what you're commanded to do. And if you think our taxation system is unfair, you should see the way it was done in those days. So, so far we've talked about persecution, talked about flattery, we've talked about our government responsibilities. However, I still haven't even mentioned the main point of this text until now. Observation four, render to God what is God's. The Pharisees and Herodians had approached Jesus saying they believed him to be a true messenger from God. And they believed that he was speaking the way of God. Yet, they did not follow him or his commands. So Jesus commands these men who presumably paid their taxes. And he said to them, render to God what belongs to God. So I want to end our time together by asking this question. What is it that Jesus is talking about? What is he telling them to give? We know that in terms of government, he was primarily speaking about taxes. But what's he telling the Pharisees and the Herodians to give from themselves to God? This, for me, was the real wow moment in my study this week. Because I believe that Jesus gave them the answer already in what he has said. I believe that every Jew who knew the Torah well would know exactly what he was speaking about here. When Jesus asked for the coin, the coin was brought to him. It was a denarius which was worth about one day's wage. On one side of the coin was the picture of Tiberius Caesar, along with an inscription which read, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. In other words, there was a picture of a man claiming to be the son of the divine, the son of God. And on the other side of the coin was a picture of Tiberius' mother. Her name was Livia. And inscribed on that, there was an inscription which read, Pontifex Maximus, high priest. And Jesus said, whose picture and inscription is this? And at that point, he was showing the side with Tiberius on it. And they said to him, it's Caesar's. And I'm sure there was great 
venom in their tone. Caesar's. Caesar's face. They hated him. And Jesus said to to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. How do we know that it belongs to Caesar? How do we know that this is his? Because it bears his image. So let me ask you, what bears God's image? They would have known the answer to that. They would have understood what he's saying. It is us. Man is made in God's image. Every man and woman and child in this world is a representation of God. We are created in his image. We are image bearers and therefore we belong to him. So what does Jesus mean when he says render to God what is God's? By it he means render yourselves. Give yourselves. Sure, give some of your money to to Caesar. But give God what belongs to him. He is speaking to Pharisees and Herodians who have said, yes, we know you're from God, but they have refused to give themselves over. They have rejected and refused God. And he is telling them, this is very loving. Give yourselves to God. Just give yourselves to God. But they are completely holding back. I want to ask you, are you giving yourself to God unreservedly or are you holding something back for yourself? Notice the response of the Pharisees and the Herodians in verse 17. It says, and they marveled at him, but they don't obey him. They're amazed at his wisdom and his brilliance and the way that he could answer this question. They see that he's an incredibly brilliant man, but they do not render themselves to him. This same group of people are the ones I read about earlier who are going to later tell the apostles, shut your mouths, don't speak about this man, Jesus. They do not render themselves to God. So I'm going to close with two very straightforward applications for you today. First, to those who are with us that do not have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. It is not enough to know that Jesus is God. It is not enough to have the information in your mind. It is not enough to know that he is a teacher who shows you the way to God. It's not even enough to know about his death and his burial and his resurrection as facts that occurred historically and factually accurate information. It doesn't matter how much you know it. You're called to render yourself to God. And I am calling you today to come to the end of yourself. If you don't know Jesus Christ, stop running from God and recognize that you belong to him whether you acknowledge it or not. Trust that Jesus died for your sins on the cross and believe that he was raised again so that you could be justified before God. The Bible promises that all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in this way will be saved. Secondly, I want to speak to those of us who are saved here in the room, those who have been redeemed by God. Let's not live as though we are still our own masters. Render yourselves to God. We so easily celebrate the fact that Christ saved us, but then we take his commands very lightly. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Are there areas of your life where you are attempting to wrest control away from God? Do you give full reign over your entertainment habits and your work habits and your relationships to God? Do you live as though you are not your own? but have been bought with a price? Do you glorify God in your body? Brothers and sisters, this is perhaps the most broad application point that I could ever make because it envelops every aspect of your person. 
Your thoughts, your affections, your goals, your actions, your deeds, your hopes, your dreams, they are all to be laid down at the feet of Jesus. And the life that you now live is to be completely lived for him. So I want to call you to repentance in any area where you are not rendering to God the things that belong to him. But I also want to encourage you. I want you to know that God is desires, if you are in him, to help you and grow you and bring you to a place of conformity with his word and conform you into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And he does this by the helper that he has sent, his Holy Spirit, who leads us and guides us. So allow me simply to close with this one encouragement from Paul's letter to the Philippians. He says, speaking of all the things that we are now supposed to be living in and doing, he says, not that I have already attained this, or imperfect. This is probably the godliest man who has ever lived other than Christ. He says, not that I have already obtained this or already am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. What is his motivation for pressing on? Because Christ has made him his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. May we, as believers, press towards this goal. Let's pray. God, I thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, I thank you that you have commanded us to render ourselves to you, for nothing could be more wonderful than to be fully submitted to you. God, I thank you that you are a loving Father who graciously gives us truth. Lord, I pray that if there is anything that we have covered today, that you would please help us to apply these things to our lives. God, for every person here, I pray that we would walk out of this building changed by your word. Father, I thank you most of all that Jesus did not end this conversation with the Pharisees and go back into Galilee, that he did not walk out of that temple that day and never return. But Lord, I thank you that Jesus went to the cross and he died for sinners like me. God, I thank you that Jesus died to cover our sins. God, I pray that you would please help us to live in light of that. Not because we have attained it, but that knowing that you have made us your own, we press on towards that call. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.